Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Hi, it's Don Johnson again with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. In this episode, we are bringing one of the messages from our recent annual meeting held at Faith Baptist Bible College and Seminary in Ankeny, Iowa. You can find audio for all the messages at fbfiannualfellowship.org. Just look under the Media tab. There you will see messages for 2023 and for 2022 as well. We also plan to release the messages and workshops in the podcast format over the next several weeks. So you can have a choice. You can go to the website and get them all and uh, for a binge listening episode, or you can take it in uh, smaller bites over the summer through your podcast feed. It's up to you. The conference was a special blessing to us all. I hope you enjoy the messages and make plans to attend our 2024 meeting in Denver. Now for today's featured message. I was saying I'm, I've not always been this way. What I mean is I've not always been passionate about evangelism and discipleship. I went to a conference like this in 2010. I didn't even know I wasn't good at evangelism. If you'd have asked me, I would have told you, oh, I love evangelism. If anyone had asked me, do you want to lead someone to the Lord? I would raise my hand. Absolutely, I'm available. But I was not looking to lead someone to the Lord. I wasn't out doing evangelism. I wasn't going to do evangelism. And so I was at this conference, and the first night there was this video that was played of just wonderful pastors of eras gone by. Um, you know, if I mention some of the names, I don't know what circles you guys run in, so I'm afraid someone's like, I don't like that guy. Um, but, <laughs> you know, um, but Oliver B. Green and... Um, and Dr. Lee Robertson and Bobby Robertson out of Gospel Light, uh, North Carolina, who had just had a fantastic ministry and had a big impact. And, and I was watching this video of, and I think they called it Walking with Giants. And I was like, whoa, what would it be like to be used like that? And so I prayed and said, I want to be used like that. Went back to the hotel room. We knelt down beside the bed and said, Lord... Use us in a special way. We were in a, we were in Houston, Texas at the time, assistant pastor at a, at a church, and um, and so that night I was very restless. And as I was trying to get to sleep, the Lord said, "Dennis, I can't use you like that. Those men are soul winners. They have." Dozens, sometimes even hundreds of people that they've led to the Lord. And what have you done? And I was so convicted that I scratched out every session. The next three days at that conference, I only went to evangelism and discipleship classes. And I rubbed shoulders with guys who gave me wonderful ideas of how to start gospel conversations. So, so when I went home in 2010 as an assistant pastor, I was on fire. And I, I don't want to give away the story of what happens. Just two weeks after, uh, I had a chance to lead a husband and a wife to the Lord at a restaurant. I'll give you the story here in just a little bit. Maybe that's a little bit of a teaser. Uh, but we'll, but 
So then, in two years later, after that conference, then we candidated to go to First Baptist Church in Colville, Washington, and nobody really knows where that's at, and I like it that way. Um, um, <laughs> you know, when you're around a lot of other pastors, you also not only have the standards of your own church, but kind of everybody looks at you. You, you don't know me, and uh, you don't know what I've been doing, and I, I like that. Nobody tells me I can't do it that way, and nobody says it's never been done that way, and nobody stops being my friend, because they don't even know I exist. So we're up, so it's 50 miles south of, of Canada and it's just 50 miles west of Idaho. So we're in the right hand corner of Washington state. We're in the timber region. It is a beautiful place to live. But when we got the call to say, Hey, listen, would you consider coming and being the pastor at First Baptist Church? I went and as I surveyed our church, um, we had a track rack, but there were no tracks in it. There was Baptist bulletins. Praise the Lord. You know, uh, you got to have a Baptist bulletin if you're a part of the GRBC. And um, and there was a there was some camp brochures. If you wanted to go to Camp Gilead over in Carnation, Washington, I remember that that was there. And. And that was it. And so as I sat and I was candidating and I probably asked the wrong questions because I was too young and too dumb to know that you're not supposed to ask those questions. You're just, but I asked the deacons, I said, um, When's the last time someone got saved in this church? Four years. When's the last time someone's been baptized here? Two. When's the last time any of you have led someone to the Lord? You're not, by the way, don't ask that question in a... I'm just telling you, that's not a good intro. But I didn't know any better, so it was okay for me. When we got done with the conversation, I said, I can't come to First Baptist unless, because I'd made a decision in 2010, I am going to be about evangelism and discipleship. That's what the Lord's called me to do. If if this church wants me to come, then we are all going to have to be about evangelism and discipleship. Whether we get anything else done, we're going to get those two things done. And one of the deacons at the end of the meeting says, we need to do something different than we're doing now, because if we don't, we'll be dead in 10 years. So the reason I tell you that story is because you may have come to this conference and said, I don't even know where to start. How do I create a culture of evangelism in my church when nobody wants to do evangelism? How do I create a culture of discipleship in my church when they don't even know what discipleship looks like? And my desire today is to tell you the principles I'll give you this morning, hopefully, Lord willing, will be principles that whether you're in urban, like I was when I was in Houston, Texas, and we put a pin in the map and drew a circle around the church, we had 250,000 people within five miles of our church. There's 8 million people in Houston, Texas. Or whether you're in rural Washington, Metropolis, we're the county seat, we have the only Walmart between Canada and Spokane. 4,500 people strong. Whether you are an extrovert like I am or whether you are an introvert, I believe these principles work every single time they're applied. And so I'm hoping just to be an encouragement. But before I can begin into the message portion, uh, we need to define a couple terms that I think will be helpful. Creating a culture of evangelism. Um, there's a difference between vision and culture. Vision is what will be someday. It's the goal. It's the purpose. It's what we're shooting for as a church. And to be honest with you, I don't personally know many churches that either in their founding documents 
you know, purpose statements here about 10 years ago were a huge deal. Vision statements. Make a vision statement for your church. And, and so everybody put them up and then they put them into a little, I don't know, three, uh, what do you call those? Uh, three little points that can be easily remembered, you know, uh, and we're going to do these things and this is what we're about so the whole church can kind of get on the same page. I don't know many churches that don't have a vision statement as far as what we want to accomplish for the glory of God. Vision is what you're going to be someday. That's the goal that we're shooting for. Culture is what happens every day. And culture eats vision for lunch. There's an app you can get on your phone. It's called From Couch to 5K. Uh, Listen, hey, I'm not a runner. If you see me running, you better start running. (laughs) Something is wrong. Um, So I'm not a runner, but I, I I have looked at the app. That's as far as I've gotten. I've opened, I've downloaded, I opened it up. I was like, probably not. <laughs> but what it does is it gives you incremental steps. Today, I want you to walk for a half a mile. I'm going to have you do that for four days. And you're going to take a day off. And then you're going to, next week, you're going to walk a mile. You can do that for four days. And, and it's, it really is to get you geared up and to get your muscles stretched out and to get you ready to go. It, what it's developing in you is a culture. It's something that you do every day. And they make these watches now. My wife got me one of these watches. They are awful. Do not get it. Don't get one of these watches. Because every hour on the hour, it says, this is how many steps you have left to meet your goal for the day. I don't really have a goal. Someone else has set the goal for me. It's 10,000 steps. Come on. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. I can go on all day about exercise. Um, I'm not for it. And so I will say this. Culture is the atmosphere of your church. If you have a great vision statement, and many of you do, but if, you're, if your culture is toxic, if, it, if the culture is lazy or unmotivated or there's disunity, you will never accomplish the vision because culture is what happens every day. But I also say this, some churches have a great culture. They're, they're fun to be around, but there's no vision and so they're not actually getting anything done. They just love hanging out with each other. And so I believe scripturally that vision is important. But we need to develop a culture in our church of evangelism. Culture is the daily ways in which we achieve vision. And Jesus describes the culture of a disciple. And if you'll permit me this morning, I believe by extrapolation, the culture of a Jesus-following church in Mark chapter 1. Would you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1? And we just have two simple verses that we'll read. And then we'll begin to make some application for that. Mark chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse number 16. This is what the Bible says. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said to them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. There's a parallel passage, I won't have you turn there, in Matthew chapter 4 that says, And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Can I just break down these simple verses just real quick, and then we'll get to our points this morning. He says, Come ye after me. 
You ever played the game follow the leader? Whatever the leader does, you're supposed to do. It's the simplest way to def- define a s- disciple. Uh, a disciple does what the master teaches. Um, Jesus says, "Do come ye after me, do as I do, follow me, become like me. And then Jesus says, if you come after me, I will make you something. I will do a work in you. I will cause this to happen. I will accomplish this with you. I will cause my disciples to possess certain characteristics. And then he tells us what the certain characteristic is. I will make you a what? A fisher of men. That characteristic is that we would be Soul winners. That's what Jesus told his disciples he would make them. And like I said, by extrapolation, I believe he's telling us as the church, I will make you fishers of men if you are my disciples. And the very first thing that Jesus mentions about being a disciple, the very first trait of those who claim to follow and love Jesus, the very first distinction of a Christ follower is that they are fishers of men. Even before he says, if you love me, right, uh, You'll, you'll know these disciples because they have love for one another. And I'm saying that's inside the church. But what's the number one thing a disciple is known for? Is love for those who are lost outside the church. A fisher of men. That's what he's going to make us. Now, don't turn there because you already know it. And we'll save a little time. Matthew 28 says, and the Bible says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever. Ever things I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Right? So there's the Great Commission. The first thing that Jesus says of his disciples is that they will be fishers of men. And the last command he gives his disciples is, be fishers of men. The first thing he says to his disciples, the last thing he says to his disciples. And yet, oftentimes in our churches, sometimes in our pulpits, as it was with me, this is the one thing that's most neglected. It is the Possibly the least intentional thing that we're doing as local churches is evangelizing the lost. And somewhere there's a disconnect between the priorities that we claim and the actions that we practice. In fact, one author states it this way. He describes evangelism as the engine of the church. He's, he's describing an automobile that's being restored. And he's saying, uh, and this is what he says, and I'll quote him so I don't get it wrong. While our engine is in disrepair, we deliberate at great length on the best way to fix our chip paint or whether or not we should install cool new rims. But all the while we neglect the engine, we miss the greatest issue reaching men and women with the gospel. Pastors, have you been on Twitter lately? Maybe you don't. I I am on there. I don't post much on there, but I follow it. You know what most pastors are arguing about? Paint. Rims. Music. Bible. Ver- I know all these things are important. Can we get the engine going first before we worried about what color you like best? Whether you have up lights or down lights. Whether your pastor wears a tie, doesn't wear a tie. Thanks for not making us wear a tie. I do in my church, but I'm just saying it is pretty comfortable. We have arguments over colors of carpet and branding. If I have one more branding thing uh, come across my desk, you know, how's your church branded? What logos? Hey, listen, I think those are all great, but we, but not if you're not evangelizing. Marketing is not the reason our churches aren't growing. Lack of evangelism is. And this session will not fix a broken engine. 
by refueling it with enthusiasm. I'm an enthusiastic guy. I love evangelism, but that won't fix what's wrong. You will not run back more enthusiastic and everything will change just because your attitude changed towards evangelism. We have some actual work that needs to be done on the engine. And so I believe that we can cultivate a culture of evangelism in our local churches. It begins with some of these principles. So number one this morning, and you have it in your notes, we'll put it up on the screen, model it. You as a pastor have to model evangelism or your people will not do evangelism. In Mark chapter 1, verse number 17, the Bible says, And Jesus said to them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Come after me, follow me, do what I do. Jesus was a soul winner. The woman at the well. Jesus Samaritan. It was, um, I can't remember the speaker's name. I can't, I, degrees, uh, to clean, thank you. Man, he was there and I was everything I could do to stay in my seat. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, you know, um, that's, that's right. Uh, we need to follow and we need to imitate and we need to model. Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples. It doesn't matter if it's the demoniac of the Gadarenes, if it's the man being lowered down through the roof, if it's the blind man or the lame man. He's always giving the gospel to someone. When is the last time we've given the gospel to someone? Why does Christ show them? Why does he model it? And here's the reality, because more is caught than taught. You know this if you've ever had children. They don't do what you tell them to do. They do what you do. Your church, the people that you lead, it's the exact same way. They don't do what you tell them to do. They do what you do. If you have great music, it's because you prioritize great music. And if you have a great teen program or a children's program, that's because what you prioritize, that's what you celebrate, that's what you show. If you have um, a dynamic preaching, it's because that's what you prioritize. But that also means if we don't have a culture of evangelism, it's because we haven't prioritized it as pastors. As a leader, you should know that you're a role model for evangelism and I've heard pro athletes say this. Hey, listen, I just go out on the basketball court and play. I'm no role model. Well, guess what? You as a pastor don't get to claim that. You are a role model whether you want to be or not. And either you will model something that is true about evangelism and discipleship or you will model something that is not true about evangelism and discipleship, but you will model something. A leader should always have someone they're bringing along with them. Someone that they're training. Have you ever heard that phrase? It's a leadership phrase in the world and business. It's not a true idiom of scripture. It's lonely at the top. Right? That's what they, that's a lead, it's lonely at the top. It's, that's not a leadership phrase. That's a personality disorder. The reason that you're lonely is because people don't want to hang out with you. A leader, on the other hand, is building relationships always. They always have someone they're bringing along, someone they're discipling to do evangelism, or they're evangelizing someone. They're rarely ever alone. And I'm just telling you right now, this process is slow. We're nine and a half years in. And we're still not everything that we're supposed to be, so... I'll get you, give you some principles of what it means to go slow here in just a minute. There's a, there's a leadership principle called the law of reproduction. It states that it takes a leader to produce a leader. 
And if I was to take that out of the business world and put it into church, I would say it takes a pastor to train a pastor, which is why I love this college so much. I'm so thankful that we have pastors who are training our young people at this college. But I also believe it takes a soul winner to win a soul winner or to lead and create a soul winner. You'll never teach someone to do something that you don't know how to do. By not learning and by not teaching, we have placed a lid or a cap on our leadership and ultimately the multiplication that a church could do through evangelism. So how do we as a pastor model that? Well, we, we start with something very simple. By creating a gospel conversation, I mentioned that I was at that conference in 2010, and here's one of the phrases that I took away from that. You ever been at a restaurant and your server's getting, you know that awkwardness? They take your drink order, you get your drink order, they take your uh, meal order, and by the time you pray, they're coming back with your meal, and then, you know, the awkwardness, your heads are bowed, they're trying to deliver your food. And so what we did was just eliminated that process. When they take our drink order, here's what we always ask. Is there some, we're getting ready to pray for our food to avoid the awkwardness that's going to happen here in just a minute because they always laugh. They're like, yeah, we've done that. Is there something that we could pray for you about? I learned that phrase two weeks later in Houston, Texas. We were hosting a singing group from a college and we went out to Caraba's Italian Grill and there was a server and all I did was I looked at my phone because I had that, I, had, I hadn't had it quite memorized yet. I looked at my phone and I said, hey, listen, we're about ready to pray. Is there something we could pray for you about? And this young man named Tim, he's like, well, yeah, I'd never had anybody ask that before. But my wife and I, we're really struggling. My marriage is on the rocks. And I'm sitting here looking at all the college students saying, I didn't know it was going to go this way. I, I'm not I'm not sure what to say at this point. You know, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to know what to say, but I'm like, oh, I feel so bad for you. I mean, <laughs> and this is, you know, just take our order. <laughs> uh, it was awkward. He just poured his heart out there. He comes back with the meal and he said, hey, listen, my wife is a line cook in the back of this restaurant. If I brought her out here, would you pray for us too? Her too? Yes. I guess she comes out and she stands beside our table and I stand up beside him. I put my hand on Tim's shoulder, which, you know, probably awkward. I don't know that I don't hug. I'm not a hugger. I'm not, you know, uh, but I put my hand on his shoulder and I just prayed for him and his wife and said, would you please repair their marriage? And I gave him a, a card, a track, and just said, hey, listen, the only way that your marriage is really going to get repaired is if we, if Jesus begins to do a work in your life, could I introduce you to the most important relationship that I have? And we gave him the gospel. They ended up coming to church with us. They couldn't stay for the main service. They could only come to Sunday school because they served on Sundays, and they had to be at work at 11 o'clock. And so, but they, they committed to come into our Sunday school class, so we brought them in, and then we took them to a Houston Astros game and we had them over to our house and we began to disciple them. And Tim and his wife, they got saved and they got discipled in the church. And I began to see this work. And from that moment on, I was like, I will never be the same. Because after you experience at one time, you don't want to live any way else. You're like, oh, I'm in. I'm all in. Jesus is still doing work, right? You get really excited. Now it's like, who else, you know? Uh... You know, who else can I ask? How often can I go out to eat? Um, 
I've only been told no three times. That three times, three. And the reason is because it just just happened in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, <laughs> twice I was told no in the Seattle area, and then I was just out to meet, eat with Marty Hare, and I asked our server, and he kind of looked at me, and Marty's like, he wants to pray for you, and the guy's like, I don't have anything to pray about. As soon as he left, I told Marty, I said, he needs prayer. He doesn't even know it. I'm going to pray for him. Then you can begin to develop a prospect list. Um, and if I start keeping track of those that I witness to and follow up with a phone call or an email, and I chart how many contacts I need to make until they actually come to church with me. And if you want that form, if you'll get with me after, I'll be glad to email you that form. But I actually track those that I witness to um, and I, I'll be happy to do that. Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you to become, I'll, I'll make you a fisherman. I found that I couldn't change the culture of my church until I changed myself. Some of you are saying, but I'm not going to do that very well. Anything worth doing is worth doing imperfectly. You say, oh, that doesn't sound right. Okay, let me give you, let me give some examples since I already use exercise. If you can't do 10,000 steps, would you at least do two? Here's something you'll love for your teenagers. If you can't brush your teeth for a full two minutes, could you do 30 seconds? Please, for the sake of the rest of the family. Anything worth doing is worth doing imperfectly. Just start. My second point this morning is preach it. So you have to model it, and then pastors, I believe we need to preach it. We're back in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 17. Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. He's going to make them become fishers of men. If you want your church to more, be more evangelistic, you need to tell them to be more evangelistic. Now, it helps if you're doing it yourself, right? Because that's why we put modeling first. But we need to be telling our churches to be evangelistic. And whether you preach textually or topically or expositorily, preach from passages of the Bible that talk about people leading others to Jesus. Mimic our Savior. Um, preach that life and death are literally in the balance. We believe that, don't we? Heaven and hell. Those are the two destinations that Scripture talk about. Either they're going to heaven or they're going to hell. Hell is real. It's a real place filled with real fire, with real torment. And if we believe that, we wouldn't want anyone to go there. And we need to preach that. My first dedicated sermon series was two months after I became the pastor at First Baptist, and we did it on evangelism. We're in a rural area, so we called it Gone Fishing. I love Andy Griffith, and I was, you know, think when he's walking down the thing with the pole, I was like, you know, nobody gets scared about fishing. They love it. And I was trying to tell our church that evangelism is supposed to be enjoyable. But in that sermon series, in one of the sermons, we touched on the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and it dawned on me. The rich man lifts up his eyes in hell and he asks for two things. First, would you please send Lazarus to put his finger in water and dip it in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. And he only asks for one other thing. Please someone, send someone back to tell my brothers, to tell my family. And I was sitting there and I was preaching it and I was realizing if the rich man's brother was in my town, would they ever know? 
And when they ever find out, and that was the year in 2014 that I committed, we're going to reach every house in our town every year. Now, I have an easier job on that than some of you, right? I told you, we, draw, we dropped a pin in the map and drew a circle in Houston and had 250,000 people. We had to cut that down to 10,000 people. We wanted to reach 10,000 people, so we just made the circle a little tighter. But in our town, there's only 1,650 homes inside the city limits of Colville, Washington. And if I had 200 people show up for visitation on the Saturday before Easter so we can invite them to Easter services, if I gave everybody eight cards, we'd be done in 30 minutes. It's doable mathematically. There's no reason why we can't reach every house in our town. And I said, we need to go find the rich man's brothers. If you had someone living in Colville, Washington, they were your family. Here's how your prayer would go if you were here in Iowa. You would pray, Lord, would you please send someone along their path? Would you please send someone to tell them about Jesus? And you would hope that First Baptist Church would be doing their job at going into the highways and the hedges and compelling them to come in. And so when I, so we had never done outreach like that at our church before. And when I mentioned that, they're like, Pastor, you know where you're at? I mean, this is the Wild West. We, everybody has guns and long driveways and, you know, and so don't, don't be doing that. And I said, hey, let's, let's reach everyone it's safe to reach. And then, and then when you're, when you have a neighbor who's down one of those roads and they know your truck and everything like that, then let's, then we'll expand, but let's do what we can do inside the city limits. Nobody's shooting anyone inside the city limits of Colville, Washington. We're just scared. So let's go do it. And I remember the first time we went to the planning commission of our town and said, hey, listen, what can we do to get maps? And the guy went to uh, one of the EV free churches in town and he said, hey, this is awesome. Our church should be doing this. He printed me off 40 pages of all the gas and uh, tie-ins to every house and he put an address on each one and he handed me a stack of 40 on these big things. And he's like, here's the map for the whole town. Knock your socks off. And we did. You know what type of rejoicing it is when your church can see that you've reached your entire town and every door during that year has got an invitation to come to church and to have the gospel? You may not believe in door-to-door. I still have people in my church like, this is the least effective ministry that we have. Like, less than 1% come because of all these, all this work. There is something to be celebrated about faithfulness. Not just results. And so as long as I can see those brothers who need to be told about Jesus, we're going to reach the houses in our town. You know, during World War II, the United States produced warships in astounding numbers. After the war, the Navy had more ships on its rosters than it could keep in service. They had, um, they wanted to just park some ships out, uh, so that if the need arose, they, in within 120 days, they could be serviceable. They started with 350 ships. Today, not one of them could be ready to go in a year. And, and not 350 do we have left. We have six left in the reserve fleet. It's parked off Susan Bay, California, 30 miles northeast of Sacramento. They have this anchor system set up, but they have convinced, and I think, uh, what we call it now, if you look it up, it's called the mothball fleet. And I think several of our churches have kind of uh, assigned themselves to the mothball fleet and said, if the need ever arises for evangelism, I'll be there. If, if I can uh, help when the opportunity comes, I will do that. But we're just not 
going, let me encourage you to go. So we, we model it, we preach it, and we expect it. Number three, we expect it. Listen to how Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to expect you to do evangelism. Mark chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus says to them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. I'm sure that you understand that since Jesus laid out for his disciples his expectations ahead of time, when they joined Jesus, they knew that they would be expected to be soul winners. He's like, if you come after me, if you follow me, I'm going to make you to become fishers of men. And when they arrived, Jesus expected them to be fishers of men. And they weren't like, oh, I didn't know this was involved. We have a phrase that we use inside of our uh, membership class. You're joining us. We're not joining you. This is who we are as a church. Evangelism and discipleship is expected. Just as Jesus expected his disciples to reach out, so we expect our membership to reach out. By the way, I know the leadership principle is called the law of magnetism. You attract who you are. Old timers used to say it this way. Birds of a feather flock together. You want to become a soul winning church? You want to attract those who love to win souls? Then be that place. And it's not just the pastor doing soul winning. If it's just the pastor, we call that addition. When the whole church is doing soul winning, that is called multiplication. And you need to start small. So how did we start? How do we change the culture of our church? We actually didn't start with evangelism. You say, that's so counterintuitive. We started with a prayer group. In 2013, so I was so convicted about evangelism. In 2012, we preached our first series, but we still weren't doing very much. And so in 2013, in August of 2013, I said, men, we're going to start meeting at 6 a.m. on Wednesday morning just to pray for souls from Colville. That was the same year we've got a cross up on Colville Mountain and we hiked up the Colville Mountain, my wife and my family, we prayed over our city and then we came back down and I said, hey, listen, we're going to start a prayer meeting. And so we started with eight guys and we quickly grew it to three. You know how prayer groups are, right? And I was discouraged. I was like, but I said, if we had three men and myself just praying for souls, what could God do? And then. This year, we've seen more and more get involved. And listen, can you believe this? Nine and a half years, we have 12 men praying every Wednesday on their knees before God, asking for souls. I believe we also need to create anticipation that God will actually save people. So we got with our deacons, our leadership, and we said, hey, listen, when we have someone come forward in the service, I didn't say if, I said, when we have someone come forward in the service... We need to be ready to disciple them. We need to be ready to counsel them. We need to... I really believe that we need to create an environment that says someone's going to come forward today. We expect that when we come to church, God is going to move. We expect that when you bring a friend with you... By the way, when you bring a friend who's unsaved and they sit next to you in church, you sit in church differently. You're not saying, what can I get out of this service? You're saying, Lord, please work in that person's heart. I pray that you'll bring them to salvation. Please let my pastor give the gospel. In surprising insights from the unchurched, Tom Rainier says 75% of guests were invited by a friend. So we're teaching our our people to invite. And listen, we don't have traditional tracks. We just have this, this little card. 
this one happens to say experience acceptance. We've got about four different uh, fronts to them. On the back, it just has um, our service times, a quick invitation from the pastor, and then the gospel on the, uh, I guess it would be your right-hand side, my left-hand side. Um, and so just just something simple that people can keep in their truck or in their purse or whatever. And it's just very simple. It just gives us a jumping-off point to be able to give them something. Invite someone to come to church with you. Begin inviting people to make a decision. And I know that the invitation has taken a wallop because of Phineism and all this stuff and the revival, all this, you know, or should you give an invitation? I'm just a firm believer and then I've got you in the service. Why wouldn't I ask for a commitment? Isn't that what the gospel is? It's a call and a response, a call and a response, a call and a response. And I'm not giving people a chance to respond. So we just revived the invitation and said, listen, we're going to ask people to trust Christ as Savior. And you don't have to do it that way. Listen, I have plenty of friends who don't do it that way. I'm just saying there are options Create outreach opportunities for your congregation. Some are going to be in the church that you want people to come and be a part of your church at what's going on here. And some are going to be in the community. And if you want a list of those uh, that we do, um, I'll be doing that um, breakout session called Being the Local Church to the Local Community. And that will be idea sharing to allow you to share effective outreach events. We'll tell you what ours are and then I'll steal yours. I, I can't even remember what is my idea anymore. I'm not even sure I had an original idea. I've taken just about every idea. In fact, we were talking before the service with Andrew Schaff, and he says, this is what we're going to do with our intern this summer. I was like, that's my idea now. I'm not even shy. I call it shareware. If it came out of your mouth, it's shared with me. It is now mine. And I'm the same way. I expect that you would take ideas and that you would use them. When we first started expecting people to be involved in evangelism, we started training people to disciple and we used a curriculum that's 14 weeks long. And in the beginning of it, the first four chapters tell about who God is and who Jesus is. And by chapter four, it explains salvation and baptism. And I had um, a lady who was trained in discipleship in that class. And okay, I know that you're not going to like this, but she came to me and says, Pastor, I have a Buddhist neighbor and I would like to go through this discipleship. And while I was going through the discipleship class, I know she's not saved, but you said I could use it to present the gospel. So what I'd like to do is kind of use that. And I was like, but that book's like $15. Now it's 30 because there's one for you and one for her. And I know that there's no Buddhist living in Colville. In fact, I can count the number of Buddhists living in Colville in less than one finger. And here's where you're really not going to like this. I... I really thought to myself, this is the least likely person to lead someone to the Lord. Four weeks later, she knocks on my door and says, Pastor, Dara would like to be saved. I, then I said, well, <laughs> to myself, I was like, well, if the Lord could have used me, he definitely could have used you. I forgot. <laughs> she got led to the Lord. And then she was a mobile nurse. She had a healthcare business. And so she led one of her patients to the Lord who was in a wheelchair. And she brought her to church. Actually, she used her curriculum after she had finished discipleship. And she used another book to disciple her. And she got to chapter 4 and got saved. And then she came to church. And we had to lift her out of her wheelchair. And back then, we didn't have a baptistry in our church. We just had one of those portable hot tubs. And we had to get men to lift her in and baptize her. And I'm telling you what, you talk about a church that was really excited about the gospel. Because now we were seeing multiplication one after another after another. And after one of our large, um, the first year I was there, we did a large outreach um, and we had several get saved. And one of our deacons led someone to the Lord. He came up to me after and goes, Pastor, I'm ashamed to tell you, this is the very first person I've ever led to the Lord. Thank you for giving me a push. Four, let's measure it. Um, 
before I go to this point, I want to let you know that I wholeheartedly agree with uh, Dr. Hartog from yesterday. I'm not talking about comparing ourselves with one another. I'm talking about measuring your own progress, comparing yourself with yourself. Where were you a year ago and where are you now? I think tracking your progress is hugely helpful. And, and when we talk about measuring... Uh, I don't know if you know this, but in the 1930s, before the 1930s, in the Industrial Revolution and things, they weren't real. They were churning out um, pieces of equipment. They were they had factories, but they were not charting production. And in 1930s, Hawthorne Group decided we're going to chart production. Do you know what immediately happened to their production numbers? They went up by 30 percent because they were they were marking it, they were measuring it. Peter, Peter Drucker says, "What gets measured gets improved." Here's what I found. We all think we're better at evangelism than we actually are. So let's measure. You say, well, what would we measure? Um, measure how many guests you had attend services and why they were there. Did they come from an outreach event, or an invitation, or a friend? Measure what you did to follow up with them. How many first-time visitor letters did we send? How many follow-ups at homes did we do? Measure how many outreach events you do and how many attended. Measure how many gospel tracts or church invitations that you gave out. You, we may all measure different things, but can I just encourage you to measure? I'm running out of time, so I want to get through some of these things. You see, um, leaders understand that activity is not necessarily accomplishment. And so if we don't measure... We will overestimate. You say, well, well, pastor, what's happening at your church? You know, how do you measure? I wish I could say every year was like this year. The Lord just worked it out that he knew I was going to be speaking here. So he gave us a great year. <laughs> but if I was going back to 2016, that wasn't we had three salvations and three baptisms in 2016. But I can tell you this. This year we had 35 baptisms and 30 people join the church in the last nine and a half years, we've had 147 baptism, 118 members. Some of you are saying, hey, listen, that's just not possible where I'm at. I didn't think it was possible in a town of 4,500 either. Our vision has never changed, but our culture has dramatically changed. In fact, one third of our church is first generation Christians. Two-thirds are new to our church since I got there. Some of you are wondering, how do I dilute the power structure in my church? I've just become a pastor. Um, we have a group that's just running everything. You know, if you win enough people, the people that you win, you're their pastor. And how dare someone do something against their pastor? The whole dynamic changes because you have all these Christians and you are their pastor. You won them to the Lord or someone under your ministry did and you discipled them or someone underneath your ministry did and the only spiritual growth they know is in your church. And so when someone comes up against the pastor who wants to win more people to the Lord, by the way, I, we started with a budget of $1,000. I just wanted, the first year I just wanted coffee mugs just to give to guests who'd come to our services. It was $600. And the deacon said, ah, $600, that seems like a waste of money. I said, okay, I'll, I'll pay for it. I mean, church doesn't have to pay for it, I'll pay for it. Okay, if you're going to pay, we should let the pastor pay for it. <laughs> that looks bad. <laughs> yeah, as if not wanting to reach our guests doesn't look bad. <laughs> um, so we did it. We went from $1,000 to 
And this year, our budget for reaching the lost is $20,000. Show me your budget. I'll show you your priorities. Last one, and we're done. I just got the red card. You don't know this, but my wife sits. She's got a card. Yellow means you got 10 minutes and five. It's red, and it means you're done. (laughs) She doesn't do that in church. But she does do that at conferences for me. She just flashed the red card up and said, wrap it up. So we're going to do this last point quickly because I think you'll get it right away. Luke chapter 15 and verse number 10, the Bible says, Likewise, I say unto you, there's joy in the presence of angels over uh, of God over one sinner that repenteth. Can I tell you, we need to start celebrating Every time that a guest gets invited to church, we just had a lady who's been attending our church for about six months and she brought her friend Becky on Sunday morning. And you know what I did as soon as she walked through the door? She says, Pastor, this is my friend Becky. You know what she wanted to hear? Oh, Becky, we are so glad that you're here. We think that the Lord brought you here this morning for a reason and you have the best friend. She cares about you so much. We're so glad that you're here. She left after the church. Service and Becky went out and then this lady walks back in and says, Pastor, thank you so much for fawning over Becky. She just needs a friend right now. You know that gets our whole church excited because I'm not the only one who greeted her. So did all of her friends who sit near the front of the church. And then Becky's coming back next week. Ah, Pastor, I really enjoyed that. I want to come back next week. She's going to send her to the preaching of the gospel and this lady's going to be giving her the gospel. Celebrate it. What happens when someone gets saved or baptized? Now listen, we do celebrate baptisms. We do celebrate... Salvations, And I think we do that pretty naturally. We need to start celebrating planting and watering. Two responsibilities that God gives us that he will not do for us. God could make corn grow at the corner of Fifth Avenue, downtown New York City, but he doesn't because there's pavement there. I mean, he could cause it to, a seed to germinate and break through the concrete. That's not how he does it. Guess what? He doesn't do the work that he assigned us to do. He said, you're supposed to plant and you're supposed to water. Sow the seed. Water the seed. You do that and then you worry, you give me the increase. So as long as you're planting and watering, you ought to be celebrating. Hey, we did, we gave the gospel this many times this year. We're going to celebrate that. We got to every home in town. We're going to celebrate that. What you celebrate gets repeated. And I'm just going to say, the Baptist moo is not sufficient. You say, what's the Baptist moo? Oh, we've heard it all week here. When when there's a good point, when there's preaching, everybody goes, "Mm." (laughs) mmm. 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 That way the preacher knows that you are in agreement And I'm just telling you, when someone walks the aisle to get saved, mm, is not good enough. (laughs) Listen, I I know why. We don't want to give praise to man. But can I just tell you that salvations are worth clapping about? Yeah! (laughs) My people! And so are good songs. We were singing Behold Our God. We started off the conference with Behold Our God and my heart was just so full. And you probably noticed, you know, I kind of, I kind of lifted my hand a little bit. You know, a little bit at first, you know, right about here. Because I wasn't sure. Does anybody else raise their hand around here? You know, but I get happy in Jesus. I can't help myself. Yeah. 
Now I've started something. <laughs> oh, I'm just telling you, it changes your whole church when you're expecting God to do something in your midst and you begin to celebrate that and people are looking forward to celebrating with you. Pastor's going to celebrate this and we're excited about it. And you might have sat through this whole thing and said, ah, I see that. I'm just not sure I can. Let me give you one final quote and I'm going to be done. E.M. Gray said, the successful person has a habit of doing things that failures don't like to do. The successful person may not look like, feel like doing those things either, but his will is subordinate to the strength of his purpose. I submit to you, we have the greatest purpose on this earth to win the lost and disciple them to love Jesus and to win others. And so even though we may have something that says, I'm not sure I like to do that, I'll be honest, I don't care how we get it done. Well, I mean, I guess there would be a few exceptions to that. As long as we're doctrinally correct, I don't care how we get it done. But could we just get it done? Because the days are drawing near when Jesus is coming back and we won't be able to work anymore and our opportunities to win the lost will be gone forever. And I'm asking you, I am begging you, do hard things. Do hard things because his brothers are counting on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that I don't always communicate things as well as I would like to or emphasize the things that maybe others would emphasize, but you know my heart is that I just want to serve you with all of my being. I want to see people trust Christ as Savior, and I want to see them discipled and grown up and be dis- be evangelism, be involved in evangelism themselves. And I know that there are pastors here that have been longing just for some encouragement. Lord, we want to encourage them that God is not done working in hearts, and He is still saving souls, and we can be involved in the harvest. Help us, Lord, to lift up our eyes for the fields I believe are truly wide unto harvest. We love you. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast.